On May 21, 1946, Canadian scientist Louis Sloten was conducting a nuclear fission criticality experiment at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. The experiment, known as Tickling the Dragon's Tail, involved lowering a beryllium shell over a plutonium core and stopping just prior to creating a self-sustaining chain reaction. He had successfully conducted this experiment numerous times in the past, and so he didn't expect any problems this time. However, this time his screwdriver slipped and the shell came to rest completely over the core. He saw a bright blue flash and felt a wave of heat, and he knew the assembly had gone supercritical. Based on the design of the experiment and the intensity of the flash, he knew that he had received a lethal dose of radioactivity in less than a second. His first words after the experiment were, well, that does it. He quickly developed what could be best described as three-dimensional sunburn throughout his entire body and died nine days later. Sloten's death teaches us that when interacting with nuclear material, people do not get to set the terms. One wrong move can cost us our lives. In the passage we'll be studying today, we see what happened when two men thought they could set the terms when interacting with the holy God of the universe. And it cost them their lives and didn't even take nine days. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 10, which can be found on page 88 if you're using a pew Bible. Before we get into the passage, I'd like to say a few things about the book of Leviticus. Leviticus was written by Moses, uh, as, as with the rest of the first five books of the Bible. In Genesis, the first book, we read that God revealed himself to the first people, Adam and Eve. But after Adam and Eve disobeyed, God kicked them out of the garden he had put them in because God, in his holiness, cannot dwell with sinful people. Later in Genesis, God revealed himself to Abraham and promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of Abraham, and through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. In the book of Exodus, we learn that Abraham's offspring had become a great nation, but they were slaves in Egypt. So God revealed himself in his greatest saving act in the Old Testament by delivering his people out of bondage in Egypt and leading them toward the promised land. On the way to the promised land, God revealed his law to the people through Moses. It was a law that they were obligated to obey, but nevertheless it was a loving law because it revealed to them how to enjoy communion with God and enjoy life in the land. And then the book of Exodus concludes with the building of the tabernacle, the tent where God's presence would dwell with his people. I'm indebted to Lane Tipton for helping me to see the main message of the book of Leviticus. The main message of Leviticus, using many of Tipton's words, is this. God is seeking to confer himself in a bond of communion upon a holy people in a holy place through an obedient representative. I want you to pay attention to that summary because each of the parts of that summary is going to surface again at some point in this message. So I'll say it again. God is seeking to confer himself in a bond of communion upon a holy people in a holy place through an obedient representative. Follow along as I read Leviticus 10, 1 through 11. 
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. In this scene that I just read in Leviticus 10, God is revealing to us that he is holy, and he can only dwell among his people by means of a perfectly holy and obedient priest. That's how I'd summarize the main message of Leviticus 10, 1 through 11. God is holy, and he can only dwell with his people by means of a perfectly holy and obedient priest. We'll be looking at Leviticus 10, 1 through 11 in three points. Holy God, holy priests, and holy obedient. Holy God, holy priests, and holy obedient. If you're taking notes, I pulled a fast one on you, though, because the first two points are holy with an H. H-O-L-Y. But the third point is holy with a silent W and two L's. W-H-O-L-L-Y. So there you have it. Holy God, holy priests, and holy obedient. So as we turn to consider our first point, holy God, follow along as I read Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 again. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The first word, now, in this sad scene, indicates that the events in this scene follow immediately on the heels of what has happened in Leviticus 8 and 9. So in chapters 8 and 9, God, through Moses, consecrated the tabernacle and all that was in it. The tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting, for it was where God met with his people. One commentator has called the tabernacle the meeting place of heaven and earth. And God didn't dwell in the tabernacle out of a need in himself, as if he needed shelter or some place to call home. The reason that God dwelled in the tabernacle was out of his covenant loyalty to his people. He filled the tabernacle with his glory 
out of a desire to condescend and meet with his people to fulfill the covenant promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 8. In that verse, God said to Abraham, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Anytime in scripture you, hear, you read that phrase, I will be their God, you're reading a development in the revelation of God's plan to remedy the rift that sin had placed between God and his people. That the revelation of that plan progressed organically and in stages. So prior to the tabernacle, God's presence with his people could be seen as fleeting or sporadic. But with the tabernacle and the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses, we see with much greater clarity how God in his holiness would be with his people. So referring to the tabernacle in Exodus 29, 43 through 46, God said, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the tabernacle was to be a holy place of worship where God dwelled with his people to be their God. And it also provided an answer to the problem of God dwelling with sinful people because the tabernacle was also the place of atonement. It was the place of sacrifice where the sins of God's people were atoned for. So these are the things that we should think of when we think of the tabernacle. God's holy presence and the place of worship and atonement. So when we read in verse 2 of Leviticus 10 that Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, it's here at the tabernacle where they're offering this fire, where God meets with his people in holiness and glory. Also in Leviticus chapters 8 and 9, we read about the consecration of Aaron and his sons as the first priests through offerings and sacrifices. The priests were men who were dedicated to the service of God and they acted as mediators between God and his people. So they performed sacrifices on behalf of the people, and then they represented the people to God as they offered worship to God. In Leviticus 9, after the consecration of the tabernacle and the priests, through sacrifices and offerings, fire came out from before the Lord as an acceptance of the offerings. So look in your Bibles uh, right up before Leviticus 10, at the end of chapter 9, uh, follow along as I read Leviticus 9, 22 through 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses, said to Aaron, er, and, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So in verse 24 of chapter 9, this fire that came out from before the Lord came out as a sign of God's blessing on the people. One of the things that jumps out if you read chapters 8 and 9 uh, is this phrase, as the Lord commanded. 
This phrase occurs over and over throughout the various portions of dedicating the, temp- the tabernacle and the priests, where uh, Moses's, Mo- or Aaron and his sons as the priests are meticulously doing everything as the Lord commanded. And because they did everything as the Lord commanded, fire came out from before the presence of the Lord as a sign of blessing, and the people shouted for joy and fell on their faces in worship. So it's with jarring contrast that we read in chapter 10 that Nadab and Abihu did, uh, they offered fire which the Lord had not commanded them. The context in the Hebrew word translated now in verse 1 suggests that these events happened on the same exact day as the events in chapters 8 and 9. In chapters 8 and 9, Aaron and his sons meticulously did everything as the Lord had commanded. And now in chapter 10, they do something as the Lord had not commanded. The specifics of what was unauthorized aren't able to be clearly discerned. The context suggests that they knowingly offered this unauthorized fire. But the main point here is that they offered worship to God not as he had commanded them. And so God sends out fire from his presence and puts them to death. In chapter 9, the fire came out in response to the obedience of the priests. And it brought joy to the people. But now the fire came out in response to the disobedience of the priests. And it brought judgment and death. Nadab and Abihu thought they could interact with God on their own terms. They thought they could set the terms of what constitutes acceptable worship. But they quickly found out that such an attitude results in death. It's interesting that Louis Sloton was born prior to his nuclear experiment that his behavior was dangerous. Enrico Fermi told him that if he kept doing these experiments, he'd be dead within a year. A reckless attitude when it comes to nuclear experiments, can lead to death. How much more so can a reckless attitude when it comes to the presence of the holy God of the universe lead to death? Do we really believe this about God? And if we do believe it, how do we respond to it? If such judgment seems harsh to us, it's because we don't understand or believe what God's holiness requires. In verse 3, God explains why he acted the way he did. He says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. God is saying that if a person does not respect or reflect his holiness, God himself will display his holiness in that person's life through judgment of that person. And this is not all that different from what the sun in our solar system demands from us. The sun demands that we respect it. So we will either respect it by applying sunscreen, or it will burn us and we will respect it by buying aloe vera and making trips to the dermatologist. God will be seen as holy and glorious one way or another. You can demonstrate God's holiness in your life by voluntarily offering him worship on his terms through obedience, or he can demonstrate his holiness in your life by blasting you. So why is it okay for God to do this? As R.C. Sproul points out, for punishment to be just, the severity of the punishment must fit, must fit the severity of the crime. We know from Genesis 18.25 that God is the judge of all the earth and always does 
what is right. His justice is perfect and his judgment always fits the crime. So this tells us that God's holiness and his glory are such a big deal that to transgress or profane God's holiness is a crime worthy of death. God didn't deal cruelly with Aaron's sons. He gave them the just punishment that their disregard for his holiness deserved. Do you think about God's holiness in this way? Do you realize that to not honor God's holiness in the ways that he has prescribed will bring on you the justice of God? So how do we apply this in the here and now? I don't suspect any of us in the last week have put together an incense kit and used it to dishonor God. But that doesn't mean that you and I aren't also guilty of the same type of sin that Nadab and Abihu committed. They tried to worship God on, his ter- on their terms and not his. So they disregarded his commands in order to offer him worship in a manner that was more preferable to them. Maybe it was more convenient. Maybe it felt more real. Maybe they thought they'd see more results. We don't know, but the point is that they disobeyed. They didn't do as the Lord commanded. Friends, brothers, and sisters, God has laid out the terms for his worship in Scripture. We need to know those commands and we need to do them regardless of whether they are convenient to us, feel real to us, or produce results that we can see. Because God is holy and just, we need to worship him on his terms. That means we need to be devoting ourselves to learning those commands. We can't obey God's commands if we don't know them. So spend time reading God's word, listening to his word preached, reading good books like the books in the church book nook, and learning from Christians in your local church who have spent time doing all these things. Don't let ignorance lead you to disregard God's commands and his holiness. And when you know God's commands, take them seriously. Do you ever say to God, can't you just let your justice slide from me because I want to live my own way? I know I'm supposed to live in light of your holiness, but I'd rather live for myself or for what I have determined to be a worthy cause. Can't you just relax your standards? Those thoughts show a disregard for God's holiness. God cannot relax his holiness because he is just and holy. One time a friend and I were discussing obeying God. And I told him that sometimes I find it hard to care about obeying. And my friend responded, it sounds like you find it hard to care about God's wrath and his holiness. My friend was right. The way that we approach God's commands and our own sin tells us about our view of God. Do we view him as holy? Do we view him as just? Do we care about his holiness and wrath? Verses 1 through 3 of our passage tell us that God is holy. And because of that, he cannot dwell in close relationship with unholy people except in judgment and wrath. So how then will God dwell with his people? And that brings us to our second point, holy priests. Follow along as I read verses 4 through 9. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. 
and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. What we see in this next section is the idea that priests must be holy. Leviticus 21.6 says of priests, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. The principle here is that the priests were the closest to God's holy presence, so the utmost holiness is expected of them. It is for this reason that God commands uh, Aaron's cousins to carry away the bodies of Nadab and Abihu, rather than commanding Aaron or his remaining sons to do so. Priests were forbidden from touching dead bodies because touching a dead body would make a priest unclean and disqualify him from the service of the Lord in the temple, in the tabernacle. Remember where Nadab and Abihu were when they offered this unauthorized fire. They were at the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord. So this is one reason why Aaron and his sons couldn't carry away the bodies of their own loved ones. But there's another reason, as we see in verse 6. Moses tells Aaron and his sons not to let their hair hang loose or tear their clothes. These actions were customary mourning actions in ancient times. So Moses is effectively telling them not to mourn. Why shouldn't they mourn? Well, Gordon Wenham points out that the surviving priests had to identify themselves completely with God's viewpoint and not arouse any suspicion that they condoned their brother's behavior. If they participated in the customary grieving actions, they might be tempted to complain against God about the death of their brothers instead of submitting to God's just judgment. God's priests must take God's side against sin. What's more, in verse 10, we are told, they are told not to leave the tent. They're not to leave the presence of the Lord because they've been anointed to serve him and must stay there to be fully committed to him. God allows no wavering in the hearts or actions of his priests. And in verse 9, we see that the priests were to drink no wine or strong drinks when they go into the Lord's presence. Alcohol could make them careless or impair their judgment, in the presence of God, so it was strictly prohibited for priests on duty. God requires priests to have perfect judgment and attentiveness to their task. This concept of being holy or set apart in the presence of God is also why God's law required that if a man was to be a priest, he had to be free of any physical defect. Leviticus 21, 16 through 21 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a blind man or lame, 
or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. God allows no imperfections in his priests. Built into all these requirements is the same theme that we already saw in the first point. To transgress God's holiness brings death. The reason the priests had to meet all these requirements when entering into God's presence was so that they could walk out alive. It's interesting, isn't it, that Moses says to the priests that the consequence for their disobedience would be that the wrath of God would come on all the congregation. If the priest disobeyed, God's judgment would fall on the entire congregation, not just the people. Remember that I said the theme of Leviticus is important? God is seeking to confer himself in a bond of communion upon a holy people in a holy place through an obedient representative. The priests in the book of Leviticus are pointing to that obedient representative. The priests represented the people to God when they offered gifts and sacrifices. They entered into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, with the blood of a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So any wavering, any negligence, any carelessness, any disobedience, or any imperfection on the part of the priests, and and the priest would die, and the sinful people would have no representative. And to have no representative is to leave oneself bare to the just wrath of God due because of sin. In order for God not to break out in wrath against the people, they had to have a completely holy, devoted, obedient representative. In short, the priest had to be perfect. The problem is there is no such man. Search the world. Search the Bible. Show me a character in the Bible who appears on more than one page of Scripture and doesn't have a serious sin issue, flaw, or character defect. Show me such a man. Show me a man who can live a perfectly holy, obedient life to God and be a perfect priest to stand between us and the wrath of God. There is no one who can do that. There's no perfect man. There is no one who can be a perfect priest except one. And he appears on every single page of scripture and his name is Jesus Christ. The theme of Leviticus is one and the same with the theme of the entire Bible. God is seeking to confer himself in a bond of communion upon a holy people, in a holy place, through an obedient representative. Jesus is that obedient representative. It's through his actions that God dwells with his people as their God, makes them a holy people, and frees them from bondage, and saves them to a holy place. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to dwell with his people. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word of God, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word translated dwelt in John 1.14 could be literally translated tabernacled. 
Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is the place of God's holy presence. He is the place for worship and atonement for sins. You and I have sinned. We've all sought to worship God on our own terms. We've all disobeyed God's commands. We've disregarded his holiness. You and I need a priest. We need a perfect priest. We need a priest with no wavering, no negligence, no carelessness, no disobedience, no imperfection. God's wrath will break out on us as the just wages for our sins unless we have such a priest. Jesus is that high priest. Hebrews 27, 26 through 28 compares Jesus to the priests in Leviticus. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus appeared as the high priest through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, his body, entering once for all into the presence of God. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Jesus came and dwelt among us and lived a perfectly obedient life. He never once was careless. He never once worshipped God on his own terms. He never once disregarded God's holiness, and his heart never wavered. His whole life was lived in perfect worship and obedience to God. And so because of this, Jesus, our great high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies by means of his own blood and offered atonement for the sins of his people. And three days later, because Jesus, our, whole, our high priest, had perfectly kept all God's requirements, he walked out of the Holy of Holies alive. Three days after Jesus died, God raised him up from the dead and accepted his priestly work. He accepted his sacrifice for the sins of his people. And so Jesus secured an eternal redemption. Jesus, who through the Spirit of God offered himself without blemish to God, purified his people from dead works to serve the living God. You need a priest. You can't be your own priest. There's only one perfect priest who offered an acceptable sacrifice. If you want him as your priest, repent. Turn away from your sins and leave them behind and live a life of obedience to Jesus. Worship God on his terms and celebrate the wonder of his holiness. And believe. Believe that Jesus is able to stand in the gap between you and God. Believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that you can dwell with God. Stop trusting in yourself and trust that Jesus is who he said he is and that he can save you. Unless you repent and believe, there is nothing for you but the wrath of God. When I was in college, I came to D.C. for an interview. And I arrived the day before my interview, and one of my brother's friends offered to give me 
a tour of the Capitol. Uh, he worked for a congressman, and what I didn't know is he also wanted me to, he also wanted to introduce me to his boss. Uh, that would have been helpful to know because I showed up in a t-shirt and cut off shorts. So my brother's friend took me into his boss's office and introduced me to the congressman in a suit and tie. And I felt so underdressed, I barely remembered to shake his hand. I've often heard unbelievers say that they want to meet God, that they would believe in him if he just showed up to them. You want God to show up, but you're underdressed. You're clothed in disobedience, and you're clothed in rebellion and hatred. You hate God because he's God and you're not. And you want him to meet you on your terms because you refuse to meet him on his. And so you say, show up. Do you realize what you're asking? Do you really want that? That's the last thing you want because you're underdressed and God is not a congressman. He's the holy judge of the universe. And if he did show up, if he did let you into his presence because of your sin, he would burn you because, like he burned Nadab and Abihu. The fact is, God already did show up. He showed up in Jesus Christ, and one day you will stand in his presence. And only if you find your refuge in Jesus, only if you meet God through Jesus, by repenting and believing in him, can you enter God's presence and live. I plead with you to run to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. If you want to know more about what that means, find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more. God can only dwell with the holy people. Jesus is our high priest who makes us holy. How? In two ways. He atones for our sin and takes away our unholiness, and then he writes his law on our hearts. This is what we consider in our last point, holy obedient. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 11. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. One of the roles of the Levitical priesthood was to teach the people to obey. They were to lead the nation in distinguishing between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. One of the central components of the Old Testament law was these distinctions between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. And we don't have time this morning to fully unpack those terms, so for now we'll have to content ourselves to know that those terms have to do with being qualified for the worship of God and being set apart for special service to God. And much of the law was based on these categories. The point in this passage is that the priests are to be experts at these categories. It is their duty. Why? So that they are able to teach the people of Israel all the statutes. Not only are priests required to obey perfectly, but they're also required to know God's law perfectly and teach it to all the people. Jesus, as our great high priest, fulfills this teaching role perfectly. In Hebrews 8, we are told that Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant, the covenant that God makes with his people for salvation from sins. This new covenant with Christ as mediator, is able to accomplish what the old covenant with Moses never could. Hebrews 8, 10 through 12 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house 
of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and he teaches the people all the statutes that the Lord has spoken. He puts his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then the requirements in the Bible are not just requirements. They're also promises. They're promises of what you will be one day in Christ. Jesus is in the process of putting his laws into your mind and writing them on your heart. He has secured your pardon and he has also secured your obedience. One day when Jesus comes back, you will obey perfectly all the law that he is writing on your heart. So you, like Jesus, your great high priest, will live a perfectly obedient life when he comes back. You will never again worship God on your own terms. You will never again disregard his holiness. You will never again be careless or negligent. Your heart will never waver, and your whole life will be lived in devoted worship and obedience to God. So how do we apply this? Well, if you are in Christ, that's where you're headed. But where you're headed has already broken through into the present. Jesus is already writing his law on your heart. He's already making you obedient. So strive to be obedient now. Be who you already are in Christ. Sit at Jesus' feet and let him teach you his law. Read his word, study his life, listen to his teaching. Some people say the best multivitamin is the one you actually remember to take. Well, the best Bible reading program is the one that you actually do. So pick one and do it. And if you want to change things up, get a reader's Bible and read it in chunks from start to finish like you read any other story. One day you will say in perfect honesty to God, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So meditate on it now and cultivate that love for God's word. And get rid of all the things that stand in the way of perfect devotion to God. What's keeping you from being devoted to him? Is it your career? Your money? Your comfort zone? Your hobbies? Your Netflix account? Your internet connection? Your social media accounts? None of those things are bad in themselves, and they can be blessings in your life. But when blessings become obstructions to devotion to God, they need to be rooted out and reordered. One day you will be perfectly devoted to God in obedience and worship. So get rid of anything in your life now that is hindering your obedience and worship. What is it in your life that's hindering your devotion to Jesus? Jesus is bringing you to heaven where you will obey perfectly in the presence of God in worship for all eternity. And this is where I want us to conclude, thinking about where Jesus is bringing us. Remember how I said that each part of the main message of Leviticus would come up later in the sermon. Well, we've talked about each part of that main message except for the holy place. 
where God will dwell with his people. And I want us to do that by thinking about two different cubes. The Old Covenant had a cube. It was the Holy of Holies, the inner part of the tabernacle where God dwelled with his people. But only the priest got to go there, and only once a year. The New Covenant has a cube too. Revelation 21 describes the New Jerusalem, the city in the new heavens and the new earth, in the following way. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The new Jerusalem, heaven, is a cube. Its length and width and height are equal. It's the new holy of holies where God will dwell with his people for all of eternity. The book of Revelation says that this new city does not have a temple, for the temple is the Lord Almighty and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. This is where redemptive history culminates. All through the Bible, God is singing this refrain, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you are in Christ, you are being brought by Jesus to this new city where he will be your God and you will be his people. And unlike the Old Testament priests who had to leave after entering the Holy of Holies, when Jesus brings you into the presence of God, you will never have to leave. So devote yourselves to him who gave his life to bring you there. Trust him. Obey him. Believe in him. Worship him. Love him. Find your joy in him. Find your peace in him. Find your rest in him. Find your everything in him. Behold, he is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be the perfect priest, to atone for our sins, to make us holy, and to bring us into your presence where, where one day we will live for all of eternity. So we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. Amen. Our last song.